So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Man fans. I'm Ollie Mann. This is my show, The Modern Man. And if you've just discovered us, where have you been? This is what we've got coming up for you this month. I think one of the analogies that neurologists use a lot is zebras and horses. <laughs> right. They both clip-clop, but they're not the same. What's it like to lose your sight virtually overnight? A woman once known as the mystery patient shares her story. Plus... It can be actively hot to make your partner feel like you are so driven and desperate to go at it with them that you can't even wait for them to get their pants off. Alex Fox on the compassionate compliments to give when your partner gains weight and Ollie Peart channels his inner Martin Lewis. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. Uh, Hello to Andrew in Manchester who says, Ollie, I just had to buy you a beer right now for your perfect description last episode of exactly how I feel about parenthood. Quote, a constant seething anger bubbling under the surface. (laughs) Did I say that? Uh, This made me laugh out loud, he says, whilst walking the dog. I guess I'm I'm glad, uh, Andrew, that uh, my my kid's constant needling of me has managed at least to inspire laughter in somebody. Uh, thank you as well for the beer money. Uh, we are an independent show, so do support us like Andrew did if you can. Uh, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash beer. Thanks. Uh, also, hello, Johnny, who uh, tweeted me a picture of his feet in socks and sandals. How did I become a man that gets unsolicited pictures of men's feet? Uh, <laughs> but it's happened uh, in solidarity, of course, to the uh, extremely misguided fashion stand that Ollie Peart was claiming to make last episode. Uh, Johnny, please don't ever do that again. Uh, David has tweeted to say it's not about socks and sandals this season anyway. It's about socks and sliders, if you want to get down with the kids. Socks and sliders makes all the difference, apparently. Uh, I thought sliders were those, like, uh, mini burgers you get at Permitzvahs. Uh, Hello as well to Miriam in Edinburgh, who says that um, I'm not mentioned in her PhD because she didn't do one, but apparently I partly inspired her undergraduate dissertation. I know we are we're scraping the barrel now, uh, but this is this has been a fun and unexpected meme for me. Um, So thank you, Miriam, for the copy that you shared with me of your 2010 University of Stirling thesis issues in podcasting a radio show, a study of BBC Radio Scotland. Uh, It is going into the Ollie Mann Library, no doubt to be bequeathed to the nation one day. Uh, Right, before we get going, a big thank you to our sponsors this month, Wine52. Yes, the wine offer is back. Forget about the beer one. (laughs) Go and get yourself the free case of wine. The nights are drawing in. It is the perfect time to cosy up with a delicious glass of wine from my favourite wine club, 
wine52 for free. All you need to do is go to wine52.com slash M-A-N-N, cover the postage costs of eight ninety five, and you will get three bottles delivered to your door. Now, I've been a member of Wine52 for a while, and genuinely, I love it. They are all about showcasing the very best wine from a different region each and every month. This month, I got Lisbon. Um, trying to pronounce the names of some of those bottles is very challenging, especially when you've had a glass. Lots of th sounds. Um, but know this, man fans, it was all very drinkable. Like, seriously, one of the bottles was a blend of Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon, and it had like a donkey on the front, and I thought, oh, is this going to be too heavy? Is this going to overpower my meal? Not at all. Very, very easy to drink, would recommend. Uh, you have the choice of a mixed red-only or white-only case, also included Glug magazine with recipes and articles about wine, and two tasty snacks as well. I'm going to do it for the snacks. After your free case, you will join the monthly wine club, but there's no minimum commitment. If it's not for you, you just pause or cancel any time. So remember, that is wine52.com slash M-A-N-N to claim your free case. Remember the suffix or they won't know we sent you. Wine52.com slash man. Uh, right, coming up, you will learn what park bathing is. You'll learn how much your microwave costs you to run each year. And you'll learn how to avoid popper's nose. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, your trends tested with Manscaped and everyone's favourite money-saving expert, Holly <laughs> Peart. Oh, right. I was thinking Martin Lewis is here then. He's not here. He's everyone's favourite, isn't he? Um, I, I'm saying this because uh, Georgian Inverness, you may remember last episode, uh, has tasked you with the challenge of resolving the cost of living crisis, Ollie. Small challenge. Um, how have you been getting on? Since we had a chat, actually, things have gone a little awry. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it all seems to be moving at 100 million miles an it hour, does. all of this. It's funny, actually, because when producer Matt and I as well were discussing the challenges that came in from the listeners and deciding what we should put to you last month, we were like, uh, yeah, but they've the Tory party have just chosen Liz Truss and she said that she's going to do something on the energy market. So, like, the energy bills thing, that'll be sorted out by October. <laughs> yeah. There won't be... <laughs> it'll feel like an old conversation. Yeah, but the good thing is I'm not really that worried about having to heat my house anymore. I'm just more worried about keeping it. That's kind of the, yeah. di <laughs> That's the difference exactly. that we've got here. That's what's changed yeah. in the last, last few weeks. Anyway, we're a monthly magazine show, so we like to think, you know, medium to long term. Quasi Quartang would like that, wouldn't he? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're not hung up on the current news agenda. People might be listening to this in a few years' time when obviously everything will be better. We're all wearing gold watches and we're walking around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a nuclear winter in our board shorts having a lovely, lovely time. Let's just acknowledge that in October 2022... It did feel relevant to investigate how to cut our bills. Mm. So, how have you been going with that? I have some advice for our George, right? I, and I, but I just want to start by saying that everything I'm about to say from here on out is not like legitimate financial advice, right? If you go and follow these things that I have suggested, and you lose money, uh, that's not my problem. All right, just, just uh -huh. that's. I just want to put that out there because I feel like every kind of money uh, service product whatever always has some kind of disclaimer it does and, yeah. and, and i need I don't a think disclaimer you need to by the way on a podcast i don't think you actually need to say that that's your that's your bbc day job coming through that's your public service values coming through to the show there. <laughs> i'm just doing my due diligence so the, i want to start with something really quite trivial and boring but whenever we talk about saving money it always turns to bulbs right 
bulbs. One of the things that you have to do to understand why it's so important to change your light bulbs from the old incandescent ones to LED ones is to understand what a kilowatt hour is. Ollie, do you know what a kilowatt hour is? (sighs) No, not really. I mean, not in any meaningful way that I can define in a nutshell, no. I mean, I know it's the measure by which energy bills are are constructed. Uh, That's it. Yeah, it is, right. So basically, if you had an appliance that uses a thousand watts in one hour it would use one kilowatt hour in an hour, right? So if it used uh, 500 watts uh, in an hour, it would uh, use uh, one kilowatt hour in two hours. Does that make sense? That makes sense, okay. yes, I'm with you. And you're right, energy is priced in kilowatt hours. Now, this time last year, a kilowatt hour of energy would have cost you about 18.5p-ish, okay? Now, yeah. right, as of the 1st of October... <laughs> I like the Barrow Boy stylings you're bringing to this. I'm not a mathematical mind, so I have to kind yeah, of yeah. piece this together in this way. It's good. Today, it's going to cost you 34 pence per kilowatt wow. hour. And that is a big yeah. deal. So this is why you should change your bulbs, right? So an LED bulb over its lifetime will last around 50,000 hours. And it uses 5 watts of energy. So it's a 5-watt... It's a See, this is why it's so confusing. A 5-watt LED light bulb (laughs) over 50,000 hours. That means over its lifetime, it will use 250,000 watts. Okay? That is... I'm getting Martin Lewis energy from this. I mean, you know, I I feel the enthusiasm. That will cost you at today's rate 85 quid over six years. Okay? Okay? Right. If it was on 24 hours a day. An incandescent light bulb... For the same amount of time, over a lifetime, it will use 2,000 kilowatt hours, and that will cost you 680 quid versus 85 pounds. You're going to have to change that bulb every 3,000 hours anyway, which is 125 days. So that difference is 680 quid versus 85 quid. Now, that's why it's important to understand what kilowatt hours actually mean and what they are, because you can apply that to every single appliance in your house. So your fridge... Uses yeah, yeah, f- but hold on. Hold what, on. on. What? I mean, it's helpful to have such a dramatic and stark example to kick off with, isn't it? You can compare it to every electrical appliance in your house. I'm not going to replace my fridge. So it's pointless to do so, isn't it? And it needs to be on 24-7 because it's got a freezer in it. Well, it depends what fridge you've got, Ollie. Because if you're like one of those like hipster cool dudes that thinks having an old school American style fridge is like really cool and great and all that, it might be costing you 500 quid a year and you could change it and save that money in two. And it would by getting a more energy efficient fridge. Yeah, but that's not very green in itself, is it? I mean, I know your mission today is about saving money, but there comes a point at which having had a fridge for just a few years is not a good look. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, as you said, so the sole la- no, 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 the sole aim yeah. is to save. No, money. focus on light bulbs. I'm totally <laughs> wrong. It's all about light bulbs. <laughs> well, what's another example then? Well, an LCD TV is another one. Okay, so if you have that on for six hours a day. Right. Uh, over the course of a year, it's going to cost you £156. But it, but the key point here is, is the kilowatt hours. All it is, yeah. is understanding what that is. And then you can do something about it. If you have a very energy hungry appliance, you can then go, right, well, I will swap that because it's going to save me this much money. Yeah, but unless you have one of those meters that you can actually see sort of ticking down, I'm not going to get down my hands and knees and check the meter outside in the cold as I turn on and off each appliance to see what difference it makes. It just doesn't seem very realistic. Yeah. So how do I get the number? 
How do I know? How do I know how much kilowatt hours my TV uses in well, standby mode? It, it should say in your in the manual, basically. So where your instruction manual will have you the it will have the energy consumption use, and you can search it online. Actually, it's quite easy to do to find out. So your model of TV or your model of fridge or whatever, you can search how much energy that uses. Alternatively, if you can't find your exact one, you can find an average. So you can find a rough estimate for a standard LCD TV, for example, which is 0.21 kilowatt hours. I do have slight pangs of terror that I'll turn into my father-in-law when I hear stuff like this because he goes around with a stick at night bending under each like uh, occasional table to turn off appliances at the wall. Um, and it's just really irritating when I stay in his house and I'm trying to charge my phone and he's turned it off because he's turning off a table lamp. But, you know, I, I applaud the economics of it. There are smarter ways to do that these days, aren't there? So uh, a man fan called Clickspee got in touch with us on Twitter to say most people have a smart speaker and with a few routines it can set your house to low usage mode as you leave which is all based on where your phone is you don't have to shout anything out I've done that and my bills are 30% down and I spent less than 150 quid to do it yes is the short answer smart plugs are like they're, they're so easy to get a hold of you I mean you can get cheap ones on Amazon which uh, work with Alexa and Google and all of those you know uh, smart speaker type things and I have it in my house so I have a Google in my house and I've set it up with some smart plugs to do exactly that it has routines it knows based on my phone when I leave the house and then it can uh, turn things on and off on a schedule as and when you need things isn't that a bit irritating for your fiance <laughs> like if she's still in the house <laughs> you want to get some milk up. does it turn everything yeah. off and, yeah. see you later can I <laughs> turn, turn the, the TV on please no my, fa- <laughs> <laughs> my phone's with me you can't you can't. No, you can add people to it. So you can add people to your routines and your family account. Because I tried to economise on Spotify. So I went down from, I'd signed up for like a nine ninety nine package like four years ago. And slowly, this is what happens, isn't it? Mm. Incrementally, secretly, these huge companies bump up your standing order. So that I was actually being debited something like fourteen ninety nine without realising it for a plan I didn't need. That yeah. had use of like five people. There's only two of us. So it was only me and my wife using it. So I'll go for what they call, I think it's called Spotify Duo, which is less. So I changed it, but it means that only those two accounts can be listening at once. And smart speakers then complicates that. So it means that if I'm listening in my kitchen to something and then I try and listen to it in my office, but my wife's also listening to something in the car, it cuts one of us off or makes one of us listen to the thing the other one's listening yeah. to. Yeah, that's happened to me me and Pip, actually. And actually, subscriptions are, 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 a, are a big way you can save money. Barclay Card last year found, uh, on average, we spend around £620 a year on subscriptions. That's a huge amount of money. It's actually gone down slightly in 2022. Uh, more people are starting to sort of cancel Netflix and things like that. But not their beer money subscriptions to the modern man, please. No, That's absolutely. what you want to keep. I have an, a genuine money-saving top tip. Go onto your phone. Now, I have an Android phone, but the same applies to iPhone. And you're going to... Can your... I do this now? You, yeah, do it now. Hold on. Right, I'll go over. Hold on. Let me join the Wi-Fi. Just need to make sure we get the iPhone ones right. So actually, you're my little guinea yeah. pig here. To sort I'll of be test. the guinea pig, yeah. yeah. Okay. Settings. So go yeah. to settings. And, and in, yeah. in Android, right, you can search subscriptions. Okay. I have found subscriptions, yeah. Excellent. I did have to search okay. for it. Now, okay, yeah. Uh, and yeah. and if, you, if you're on an Android, you can scroll down and go to manage subscriptions. And I think iPhone has a similar... A button where you can click manage subscriptions and what it will do uh-huh. is it will show you all of your active subscriptions the number of things that i have signed up to for a seven day free trial or a 30 day free yes. trial and forgotten about 
and have and been... Before you know it, you, you oh. apparently are reading the Wall Street Journal every day. Oh, my God. I have been, sub- <laughs> I have been subscribed to Duolingo Pro for no. coming on for 18 months <laughs> without realising. So it was a lockdown sign-up. And I bet you can't even say that in Spanish, can you? Uh, no, you can't. I, I, so I've, I just, just cancel. Just cancel, cancel, cancel. And this month I saved 30 quid just by doing that 30 quid i was signed up to a it was a fitness app forgot i was signed up to it it was 30 quid every three months you know obviously we have sponsors on the show that are subscription services and to be fair we always say you know you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time because there's sometimes you join something and actually you do want it and you do like it Mm. so you don't want to cancel it you don't want to not have the product you just maybe don't need it as much and I, I often find it's not that difficult to pause for a month or two on a website of a company that you're subscribed to. Yeah. Yeah, you can actually do that uh, through the App Store and Android as well. You can pause for one, two or three months. And you can do that, I think, three or four times a year. I think you can do it. Yeah. Um, it is a good, you know, if you don't want to cancel, get rid of all your payment stuff and all that kind of thing, then yeah, it's a good way to kind of save a bit of money in the short term but have you got any did you find any subscriptions live that you didn't know about no i've i'm I'm looking pretty good actually i've got an expired subscription to apple tv plus oh yeah i need to cancel Uh, that so i took the free trial and quit at the right time uh having binged the morning show uh and i've got an active subscription to something called club retrospectors which i've heard is excellent Hmm. okay so so far you've saved yourself 30 quid on subscriptions oh yeah and potentially over the course of the year, like a three-figure amount on light bulbs. Oh, huge, huge. What else? On, on light bulbs. Well, cooking is, is another area that I kind of... It, this kind of goes back to the appliance thing. So the cooker is probably the single most used thing in the house, aside from the, the washer-dryer, because the kid poos everywhere and, you know... Mm-hmm. You've got, to, you've got to wash that off. You can't just leave it to dry. So I wanted to try and figure out if there was a more efficient way to cook, basically. And yes, there is. I use a slow cooker already. Ah, right. That's that's plugged no. in the wall, isn't it? It's not using my gas. Is yeah. that good? Yeah, you're ahead of the trend there. So I, so you, have yeah. you got a gas oven or an electric oven? <laughs> I like the mentality of this. Yeah. I have an electric oven, okay. but with a gas hob. Okay. The worst of both worlds. Okay. <laughs> yeah, good. So your electric cooker, so your electric oven, is going to cost you yeah. roughly, depending on what model you've got, uh, depending on what model you have. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This is so good. Oh, man, I'm going to become a mo- money-saving pro. That's going to cost you around 300 quid a year. Okay, 300 quid a year. For your let's, let's have it. Yeah. Can we just have it on the wheel? Three hundred pounds a year for your gas, your electric cooker. If you've got a slow yeah. cooker, that's going to cost you around fifty nine pounds a year. That is a big saving, right? They use yeah, so good. much less. Yeah, energy. but hold on, hold on. Yes, go Just, on. I'm holding so, on. I'm holding on. As I said, I have a slow cooker. Right. I like the slow cooker. I use it because I have a particular penchant for like stews and mm. stocks <clears throat> and wintery stuff that takes all day to cook cheap joints of meat as well that's another thing if you're a meat eater you know you can get a really crappy old gristly bit of bony meat and stick it in a slow cooker and it's gorgeous all of that's good but again i think you have to weigh up like cholesterol versus <laughs> energy saving right and i'm not talking I, I don't get me wrong i know there are people out there who are so struggling to pay the bills heating versus eating and all of that i'm not talking to you guys but for the people who can sort of afford to live, but are trying to make some savings, you don't want to be eating from a slow cooker every day. Like, it's, it, you're, what you're doing is you are cooking your food in congealed animal fat. That cannot be good for you. 
Like when people say, oh, like you use every bit of the bone. It's like, yeah, you use every single bit of the animal fat. <laughs> it's straight to your heart and then you die. Yes. So I just think that's like, it's going to be like a mix. I mean, there are some healthier recipes that you can use in your slow cooker. Don't don't listen to Ollie. Don't just put fatty meats in there. <laughs> you can put some nice things like some pulses and tomatoes and actual yeah, vegetables in lentils, there. Lentils, vegetable stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But two, two, other, two other appliances to use instead of your electric cooker to help you save energy but still cook are an air fryer. All right, so you can use an air. Yes, fryer. got one of those too. Brilliant. Got one of those, yeah. but also your microwave. So although your microwave uses quite a lot of power, it uses it for a much shorter amount of time. So on average, yeah. over the course of a year, a microwave is going to cost you about thirty odd quid to run. So thinking about instead of boiling your vegetables on your hob, steam them in the microwave. Yeah. Be honest. When's the last time you were like, oh? Can't wait to get this dinner out of the microwave. Yeah, no, you're you're right. You uh, know, it's what you do when you're lonely and you're having a TV dinner. It's not <laughs> nice. No, but as you said before, you know, people are genuinely worried and having to save money. And if the difference is that your, you know, your beans that you're cooking taste not quite as good as they would do in your electric hob, but you could save quite a large chunk of money over the course of a year, then it's worth doing. So mm. it's just, it just depends where your priorities are. I think for the first time ever in my life, I'm like, oh, should I use the cooker today to cook? I never think about that. I'll just turn the hob on, leave the hob just warming up. <laughs> just be like, okay, that's warm. Stick the pan on, let the water boil. But you haven't put a lid on the water. That'll, boil, that'll take ages to boil. Yeah, whatever. Oh, okay, yeah, put it on. Now I'm just way more conscious about that kind of thing because you have to be, you know? You've got, to, yeah. you've got to do it. But do you waste a lot of food? I've got pet chickens, so actually no. Because they eat most of our slop. Oh, okay, right, fine. But you, st- you, but you, chuck- you think that feeding food to an animal is wasting it or no, not. Well, this is it. I mean, I mean, you're still chucking food away, aren't you? I suppose in return for your oh, waste no. food, you're, you're getting You're going to tell eggs. me to put it all in a smoothie and make a delicious I'm not going to tell you to rank do that thing. at all. No, okay. no, no, no. This Go is on. a way more sophisticated way to try and uh, limit your food waste. Freeze your old herbs? No. That's no, the thing, no, isn't no, it? No, come on. I've seen Jamie Oliver say that. <laughs> yeah. Take your parsley, put it in an ice cube tray. No, I don't want bits of broken, frozen parsley all over my freezer drawers. No, if my fridge is costing me £156 a year, you moron. <laughs> so there's an app called Lollipop, right? And okay. uh, it's a UK based app. And the, what it does is it gives you recipe suggestions. Some of them come from BBC Good Food, some of them come from their own recipe selection, and some of them are sort of community based uh, recipes that people have submitted. But what it does, this is the really cool bit, is it links with, at the moment, only Sainsbury's and you pick what you want recipe wise and then it will order the ingredients that you need for those recipes and it just turns up at your door right but it will only order the right amount so it won't kind of I mean it obviously can't do that with a bag of rice or whatever but when it comes to an onion you know I'm guilty of going yeah we need onions oh yeah okay order a bag of 20 then you know half of them go moldy and and I know I'm not the only one that does that instead of buying one pepper I'll buy three bell peppers and then two of them will go moldy and only use one so it makes sure that you don't overorder the ingredients that you've got and the other thing that's really good about it or really useful is it prices out how much it costs you per portion for the meal that you're about to eat so you can you mm. know exactly how much it's cost you to eat it's a really useful way to be able to budget and know you know how much you're spending on your food because then you can go well actually i'll go for some slightly cheaper recipes that you know a bit more healthy and you might want to splurge out one night and then you know how much it's costing you it also has recipe suggestions for bulk cooking so you can do the bulk cook so you can cook and then it's going to last you for the whole week as well home delivery feels like a luxury thing doesn't it Uh, i'd never done it until 
the COVID lockdown and then like everyone else got an Ocado free trial and didn't look back for a year. But now I've stopped because I'm like, that's really expensive. I can go to Asda. But actually, we did that the other day. We drove to Asda, which is a 20 minute drive away in my mm. car, in a diesel car. And I was thinking, actually, like, how much is that costing in petrol exactly. these days? Yeah. That might be that might have just put 20 quid on the bill. So what am I saving? You know? Well, exactly. For the sake of four quid for uh, Sainsbury to deliver it. OK, now you mentioned apps. We talked last time about trying to achieve a saving of and we put a number on it. Do you remember the number? I remember. Yes. 20 percent. 20 percent. And we said that you were going to achieve that using technology, yep. preferably. Now you've so you've given us a couple of hints there. So lollipop is one. Lollipop's what one. else? Okay, so um, money management apps are uh, another way to try and save your money. One of them is called Revolut. Now Revolut is basically it is a bank account. You might have one. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have a Revolut account? I d- I've got Wise, which is very similar. Yeah. There's loads yeah, of them. It's a, mon- it's a no fees debit card exactly. that's linked to an international bank app, right? Yeah, they're really good for travel as well because you can you can change money really easily and that kind of thing. They're basically online banks, but their apps are really useful for budgeting and you can use them like a cash card as well. So, you know, you get paid into your normal account and you can transfer over, over a set amount to that card and you know then you're not going over. So if you're trying to manage your money in that way, they're really, really useful and then they will give you a breakdown of where and how you've spent your money, however much on groceries or however much on energy. And you can see where you're overspending. You can see where your money's going because that's half the battle sometimes is not knowing but where you're spending But then you're using money. a debit card... Mm. But then one of the tips always to try and save money is to get a credit card that gives you money back in rewards, right? But then if you're using a rewards-based credit card, you can't see where your money's going because it just comes up as a lump to American Express. I think that'll probably change anyway because interest rates are going up. So I'm not sure there's going to be that favourable kind of credit card offerings these days. And also Revolut and apps like them offer a, a lot of cashback deals with various retailers. So they have a lot of offers and deals that you can do the same kind of thing. Might not be quite as generous as the old credit card offers of the past, but uh, but still pretty good. Yeah, Chase do 1%, I think, don't they? Yeah. On the debit card. My yes. favourite app that I have found... If you want to try and save money and know where your money's going and know what's happening with your bills, is an app called Snoops. What you do is you link your bank accounts with Snoops and it will ask for access and it can do that through your banking app and then you verify and you give it access to your accounts. And you can add multiple accounts on there as well. So if you've got several current accounts, then you can do all of that kind of stuff, as many as you like. So what it does then is it scans through all of your bills and it knows uh, where your money's going and where you're spending your money. And then, this is the cool bit, it'll say, hey, uh, in the last 18 months, you've spent 680 quid with BT on your broadband. Why don't you change? Because your contract's expired. Why don't you move to Virgin? Because you can save this much money and you get a £100 cash back from Amazon. Wow. It's really good and it's got some genuinely helpful sort of articles and blogs on there as well. And it'll give you a breakdown of your sort of your monthly, uh, like written like an article, it'll give you a breakdown of, say, you've spent uh, several hundred pounds on da-da-da-da-da. And it'll just tell you, just so you're sort of more aware. And I think for me anyway... It's being aware of it, isn't it? It's being aware of where your money's going and then you can actually do something about it. I've, we kind of live in a time and, and I know I'm not the only one that does this. There, Everything seems to happen so automatically that you kind of just forget. So we put that figure of 20% on it. How did you do? Have you done the calculations? <laughs> yeah, I have done the calculations. The short answer is not well. And I'll tell you why, right? So snoops, as I mentioned to you before, uh, can save you money by switching your bills and that kind of thing. I'm not at a point where I can switch my bills because my contracts have not expired. 
So mm-hmm. I have to wait. So I haven't been able to do that. That's where the big money saving would come if I was to do it. Mm-hmm. So this month I've saved one and a half percent. Okay. Of my it's a little overall, short of target. Uh, over, <laughs> of my bills, which is not a lot. Now, I'm not saying that you should have done this because this would have been like, you know, a full-time job, basically, sitting on the phone to these companies and they make it deliberately difficult for you to call them, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I just wonder, because you've been reliant on technology, which is what we agreed you should do, because that feels like the zeitgeisty, trendy way to deal with this, but because you've been reliant on technology, what you haven't done is is call your broadband supplier and say to them, look, I know I'm still in contract, but I'm going to leave you at the end of this contract because I'm paying too much and I can't afford it, and what can you offer me? And I'll sign up for another 18 months now if you halve my bills. I mean, that old-fashioned haggling is still an option, isn't it? Which actually, had you not been so reliant on technology, you might have done better. Yeah, that would be the first port of call, I'd say. You know, look at what's mm. out there. You know, use some of these apps to see what's out there and then give you, give your existing provider a call and be like, I found a deal for four quid down the road. You know, they, they want your business. You're right. You can't do th- that through these apps. So it's a little bit more involved. It's a little bit more work. So it depends how much effort you want to, uh, you know, you want to put into it. But I will say, if you're going to do anything, change your light bulbs. Uh, <laughs> I hope that helped, George. And again, I feel I should say apologies for the fact we're sort of we've got a smile on our face whilst we talk about this. We are aware that for some listeners out there, life is really, really hard at the moment. But nonetheless, we hope that we've given you some tips. And for the rest of us who could just do with saving, I hope that was helpful. Um, would you like your challenge for next month's show, Ollie? Yes. It is from Manfan Jack in Basingstoke. If you have a challenge for Ollie and you'd like to submit one, just go to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click the feedback form. And he says. My Instagram feed keeps telling me I can earn thousands of pounds a month by importing crap from China and reselling it. (laughs) Is this the new astrology? (laughs) Or can I quit my job? Oh, God, I know exactly what he's talking about as well. I've seen those. Do you? I don't get get those messages. I do get, like... Here's a way to make money without ever doing it. Like, and I clicked through the links to what it was. And it was like transcribe an ebook or something and upload it to Amazon was the yeah. thing it was trying to get me to do. Yeah, I, I, I've seen, I don't know if you've used Instagram Reels and I've come across a number of those ones where there's just like, hey, you want it? if you want to make five grand a year, just do this. Click here, click here, do this, <laughs> do that. Five grand in my bank account. And it's got like a picture of this guy's bank account. It's got a five grand in it. And I think, what? This got way too good to be true. Isn't it? But what Jack is highlighting here is mm. actually the import business side of it. So it's, it's one thing when it's digital goods or when it is just a pyramid scheme. But what, but what he seems to be saying is uh, white labeling, it's called, isn't it? Import something from another country, stick, stick a different stick label on. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Sell it on the internet or maybe in real life. I don't know. Farmer's market. And, and make some moolah. Do you think that's something you could do? <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's only one way to find out, Ollie, isn't there? I mean, uh, <laughs> we, we're going to have to do it. I, I, think, I think I'm going to spend the first few weeks trying to figure out what I'm going to call my brand, though. That's, that, that's, the big, that's the big clincher. Well, also, there's finding something to sell. So, you know, obviously, you'll, you'll start looking at what you can import from overseas. I wonder as well whether there's anyone listening to this who already has a business where they either import from overseas or make something here in the UK that Ollie could rebrand and try and sell at a profit. Just buy them out. I'll just buy them out. Well, <laughs> With all the money I've saved know. this month, I'll buy them out. You'd be buying their product at the price they're wanting to sell, but maybe there's something they could sell you that you could make more money on. That's all I'm saying. Get in touch if that's you. We're on Twitter, at The Modern Man with two N's. I've always wanted to be a middleman. 
Before we move on, though, we must thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist, Manscaped.com. Yeah, it's Halloween, isn't it, Ollie? So you've got to got to have smooth balls at Halloween. Have you? Yes. I've never thought before uh, what Freddy Krueger's penile area looks like. <laughs> Trim, I imagine, because... Has he got scissors for fa- for hands? <laughs> oh, no, that's Edward Scissorhands, isn't it? That's Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands, unfortunately, <laughs> doesn't actually have any testicles anymore. Uh, <laughs> due to an unforeseen error. But that's the thing, isn't it? You need, you got to have, you got to have the right equipment to shave your balls. That's right. Otherwise, you'll lose them. I suppose the point is, even in this month of Halloween, even when we think of various anti-heroes from popular culture who are handy with knives, even they, even uh, Michael Myers would go to manscaped.com to make sure that his balls are uh, uh, trim and not trick. Yeah, also for Halloween, uh, you can get yourself the Manscaped Body Buffer. This is just launched. It's a 100% antibacterial body scrubber. Basically, the perfect way to keep your, your, your skin and your body clean and fresh. Insert a pun about pumpkins here. Get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code MAN. That's M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. Say trick or treat to your beautiful new halloween with Manscaped. <laughs> ah, that was worth hearing. Uh, thanks, Ollie. Cheers, Ollie. See you next month. Uh, in a moment, you will meet Vanessa. But first, our record of the month. It's the new one from The Big Moon, who we love on this show. It is called Trouble, and it's out now. Standing on this bridge, I see the difference. My memory put me somewhere else. I was on the other side, like was Sometimes things happen in our lives that we are expecting to remember. A wedding, a birth, a first day in a new job. But sometimes, as we've often discussed on this show, life-changing events come seemingly out of the blue. Today, I'm talking with Vanessa Potter. When our story starts, Vanessa, who studied photography at university, is in her early 40s, living in South London and working as a TV ad producer, juggling hectic, deadline-driven work and her home life with husband Ed and their two kids, aged two and four. I was making ads about uh, toilet paper and indigestion remedies, Gaviscon, you remember the Gaviscon ads? So I ended up being um, the stunt producer in my agency, which was a bit of a weird thing. So I Stunt found my... producer? Yeah, so that meant I had cliffhanging scripts, I had helicopters, boats, whitewater rapids, uh, dogs. <laughs> There's a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of problem solving, uh, forecasting, dealing with people, relationships... It's a quite high-octane industry. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of putting it. Does that mean there's a lot of twats? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, A1 personalities, a lot yeah, of leaders. Yeah, that's another good euphemism. Um, uh-huh. I mean, there's some amazing creative people, don't get me wrong, but it isn't an easy industry, and it's often tight. 
budgets and tight schedules. Um, and having an eye for detail as well. Oh, the detail for me was actually what I loved. That's what I was really good at. I was a very hands-on creative producer. And I really loved getting into the nitty gritty and having everything laid out. I'm a very visual person. I like to see everything literally. So that's what, like making sure the the bottle in the shot is perfect there's and you that. can read everything. So that's the practical side. But then there's also reading people's personalities and reading situations that are going to go wrong and forecasting. I think as a producer, one of the biggest skills is seeing what's going to happen in the future and then putting in plan B and possibly C and even D to mitigate what might happen particularly if you're dealing with stunts which as I say I ended up doing probably because of my personality and this kind of approach to producing very nailed down um, that meant that we could shoot on you know a Swiss Alp uh, doing whitewater rapids and um, when things didn't go to plan I had plan B and plan C in place. So someone who's very much in control. Oh comp- I was the archetypal control freak. So the events we're describing happened, actually, weirdly, this doesn't happen often when I interview someone, but just so happens I've realised almost exactly a decade ago. So 10 years ago, wasn't it? September 2012. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. That we're talking about. And I suppose your last normal day, if you can call it that, was at a country show, right? Tell me about that. We were at the Malvern show. And we were there with friends and there with the kids. The Malvern show is fantastic for children. I've not been. Is it like sort of, you know... Cross-stitch and air displays, basically. It's big tractors. Okay, yeah. And flower arranging and all those lovely things that you get at flower shows. And, yeah, we went with some lovely friends that we know and, you know, bought sausages and and weird random wellies and things that you do at at these kind of, you know, um, big shows. So on the way home, I started to have headaches and I'd had this horrendous three weeks of a kind of flu that I'd never had before um, with light sensitivity and vomiting. And so to start feeling um, unwell again was was really um, unsettling. I think there was something inside me that knew something seriously wasn't right. That a shift was happening. Yeah, I couldn't tell you what, but... You know, like you have all your little sonar, the the radars inside yourself where you go, something's not right. I had that. I had that big time. I woke up with a very strange sense of like like a disturbance, a fizzing. So it was a little bit like you know the visual snow the noise you get in the old-fashioned tvs when they turned off at the end of the night and it would just like be a fizzing screen oh, that's how i describe yeah. that static i describe that to lots of people and a lot of people depending on their age look at me like i'm crazy but that's what it was <laughs> and it was like this sort of sense of buzzing in my ears a buzzing in my visual system and i felt really odd i felt dizzy i felt uncoordinated i didn't feel myself at all could you go to work? Could you take the kids to no. school? And I knew I couldn't drive. So I went straight to the GP and I remember sitting, waiting, thinking, she's going to tell me I'm stressed because mm. these are stress symptoms. But I kind of knew it was more than that. And she asked me to move my eyes from left to right and then to look down and I nearly fainted. And she sat me down. She went, right, any now. And that's where I knew that we were, we were you know, 
something was really going on because your GP doesn't normally call an ambulance for you. They were ticking boxes, as they should, and they did exactly what they should have done. But there was a sense, as the day went on, of frustration. There was no physical symptoms. I didn't look strange. I looked perfectly well. I just felt inside that something was deeply wrong. And, you know, fizzing, dizziness. There's a point where they go, look, we can't find anything on any of your tests. Your visual system seems to be normal. Okay, you've got this strange nausea. There's something going on. They gave me anti-noisia tablets. Mm. That, that was pretty much it. And sent you home. Yeah. And as we were leaving, um, the consultant who I'd seen, who was a really nice guy, he touched my arm as I was leaving. He said, I'm really sorry. We're really busy. We've, we've got a lot of people in tonight. He said, if I wasn't busy, I would, I'd probably keep you in. next morning I woke up and if you imagine waking up and opening your eyes you're a bit bleary you're kind of coming to and it's like someone's turned the lights off it's like I was wearing sunglasses inside it was daylight when I woke up but there was this layer of darkness across the room and I sat up and because I'm quite a logical, practical person, I just did this kind of calculation. And I reckoned that my visual system had partially shut down and I'd lost about 70% of my vision. There was a brown, murky kind of mist over everything. The, the fizzing, that static, had actually become a visual disturbance by now. So I could actually see it. It was like um, like little particles, like uh, like a very difficult to describe, like a, like a blur in front of my vision. And I knew that that was completely wrong. So I moved very quickly and um, put lots of things in place, called childminders, had them come and collect the kids. And I just packed a bag. That was it. You were like, I'm taking myself off to hospital now. Yeah, I'm just, I just packed a bag. But packed a bag because you know you're going to be staying overnight this oh, time. Oh, and I packed for three days. I knew I wasn't coming back. I knew, I knew, I was very practical. And as I was packing my bag, um, my fingertips, I noticed, were numb. So I remember pulling the zip was difficult. Mm. See, Ed and I did that invisible communication that parents do over small children. And the whole communication was, right, back to A&E. <laughs> let's not scare them. Let's yeah. not tell them what's happening. Yeah, let's not tell them. Oh, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, but even, you know, mummy's not feeling very well, so someone else might pick you up from school yeah, today. Yeah, we, we did some of that. But we played it very low-key because we didn't know ourselves. But that was a very frightening car journey because we had a freak incident where we were driving down our road, which is a very quiet road. And it has, you know, a little bit of traffic, but we were gridlocked and we couldn't move. And I said to Ed, why is it foggy? And I remember he did that man thing. He stared out the windshield and he didn't say a word and he's... His jaw was just tensing, and I could just see this twitch in his jaw. And I went, it's not foggy, is it? And he's like, it's not foggy. I'm like, oh. And I had this sense of something coming over me, like a sense of, and it was very much like that, a creeping. And that was very real, because by the time we got to the hospital, it was very foggy. And so I could feel my vision was actually not just gone, but was continuing to go that was the most frightening part. 
we did get moved quite quickly through the different departments because of course they didn't know what to do with me hmm. and I didn't actually get to neurology which is where I probably should have gone straight away f- for quite a long time okay so yeah so is it an eye problem or is it a brain exactly. problem exactly and they didn't figure the brain bit until quite a way into investigations and testing and me seeing one doctor and then being referred to another doctor the so, only- so hold on when they thought it was an eye thing mm. were they what just giving you eye tests yes absolutely how was that um well, that was quite frightening because I'd do one eye test and I could read, you know, the big A at the top and two lines down. And then if I did another eye test later in the day, I could only read the big A and one of the letters on the next line. So you can evidence for yourself your vision disappeared. I was logging everything. And in fact, that got us shifted from one waiting room to another very fast because I remember saying to someone, Look, for crying out loud, since I came into this waiting room, that notice board, I could read the top line. Now I can't read any of it. And my feet, my feet are completely numb. And my hands have gone numb up to my elbows. And it's amazing. You say that to someone and they don't fob you off anymore. Hmm. And literally, I got grabbed by the back of the wheelchair that I was in and wheeled. (laughs) It's quite funny when we think about it. I was wheeled and I was parked outside uh, the office of one of the top neurologists, the man opened his door and fell over my wheelchair. So this is a guy who would have had back-to-back appointments. Who was absolutely the busiest man. And he took one look at me and my husband and went, right, come on in. Could you see him? I mean, you're using that word see. So by that stage, I was seeing contrast. So I'd see little bits of, like... People have their, their tabards, um, what's it called, the little things, the labels. Um, oh, yeah, your lanyards. Lanyard, yeah. word. Mm-hmm. So I'd see people's lanyards. And so I remember seeing his lanyard and I remember seeing his tie. And his tie was really old-fashioned, I remember that. It was like a maroon tie. And I remember there were ghosts in the background. That's what all the students, because it's a teaching hospital, there were these swaying people in the background. And I couldn't see them at all. Mm. And he said to me, Mrs. Potter, could you just stand up so I can examine you? And I couldn't stand. And I remember slumping back into the chair. And I think he must have seen the look on my face because he just said, it's all right. You're with me. I'm going to take care of you. And I said to him, I'm very ill, aren't I? And he went, yeah, you are. But I'm going to look after you. Did I mean, the obvious follow-on question is, and for how long am I going to be ill? We didn't get into that because it's a runaway train. When these things ha- happen, it's like a slow unfolding car crash. And it's and you can't do anything about it. You know that. So you just need to manage each second. I mean, what's sort of really hard to get your head around is that it isn't a literal car crash. You know, when it's a car yeah. crash and you've had a physical thing happen, everyone understands. Oh, she's been rolled over the motorway, so she's going to have a head injury and, and her legs collapsed. <laughs> but, but no one can pinpoint what's happened to you, what the event was. No. Do they keep asking, what have you been doing? Yeah. I mean, I, we went through every test. So I was tested for uh, multiple sclerosis, for brain tumours, uh, for Lyme disease. I mean, I was tested for, to be honest, anything they could think of. And, and everything came back as negative. So actually... It, weirdly, that was kind of in my favour because it turned me into the mystery patient. That's what they actually called me in the hospital. <laughs> so I was wheeled from place to place and, you know, more and more people got involved in my case because I was interesting. 
Um, but yes, unfortunately, while that was happening, my vision was deteriorating minute by minute. How did, how did that feel? I mean, because we've talked about you being someone with an eye for detail and being in control. So my response to that? Now, you see, I thought this was really normal. <laughs> Saying it out loud, it always sounds a bit strange. I wanted it documenting. So Ed was just thinking I was crazy and got really frustrated. But I said, I want you to write everything down that I say. I need to log this. Because there was something inside me that knew this was all unfolding in a way that I could not process. I could only live it and just experience it. But I couldn't work out what it meant. And so I needed all the details, all the people we spoke to. I needed every step writing down. That's a way of claiming back control as well, it's isn't it? Absolutely. And it was about just knowing that when I'm ready, I've got that information. Mm. I didn't want to lose any of this. And so that's how I know incrementally how much my vision was gone. So we were recording it, you know, what notice boards I could see, whether I could see the edge of someone's shoulder, whether I could see eyes anymore. My vision basically took 72 hours to finally go. And it went eventually into a halo, which is strange because, again, you've seen that as you know, in films where something goes into a tiny little mm. hole, smaller and smaller and smaller. I think we can all imagine what that's like. That's exactly what it did. It went into this smaller, smaller little tunnel. And eventually I ended up with just a tiny little circle in the middle of my central vision. And I remember the last thing I actually saw through that tunnel was my Blackberry. I had an, a very old fashioned, what now seems an old fashioned Blackberry. And I remember typing the last message I typed to my husband, which is, you had better be here at 6am. Still to come. How did Vanessa's world change again when she went back home? And how did she react to finally getting a diagnosis and prognosis? That's when the modern man returns after this. clothes? Are you pushed for time? Well, I'm pleased to say that today's sponsors, Stitch Fix, are the digital service that make clothes shopping super easy uh, and genuinely fun. I sometimes log on to my Stitch Fix account just to do what they call the style shuffle, which is this sort of gamified process by which you teach their fashion experts what you like. Tap, 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 tick, tick, tick. Yes, I'd wear those cotton trousers. No, I wouldn't wear that stripy green shirt. I'm not sure about that red beanie. I actually enjoy doing that a lot more than real life clothes shopping. And you can add a note for your stylist too ahead of each delivery so I've told them for my next fix for example that I'm looking for some trainers that I can wear out in the evening something smarter than what I wear on the school run I can't wait to try what they send me knowing that I can always return what I don't like you pay just £10 each time you order credited towards the items you keep and you man fans get 20% off when you keep all five items you can schedule a delivery anytime no subscription required get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash man and get 20% off when you keep all five items that's stitchfix.co.uk slash m-a-n-n for 20% off when you keep all five items in your fix stitchfix.co.uk slash man Back to my conversation with Vanessa Potter now. We join her again in a hospital bed in 2012, her husband Ed squeezing at her hand. 
in just the past few days, she's experienced almost complete sight loss. One of my enduring memories of lying in the hospital bed with two of my major senses knocked out was this sense of disconnect. I felt like I was just like this floating body underwater. Because if you think about it, all the cues that we have to tell us where we are in the world, two major sets of those cues had gone. So I couldn't see anybody to see where I was to orientate myself and I couldn't feel anything. So I remember saying to Ed at one stage, Ed, am I here? And of course he went silent and squeezed my hand, which I could just about feel. And he said, yes, you are here. And of course it wasn't a crazy question. It was because I felt so disconnected. And so one of the things I really needed to do was to connect to people in any way possible. So I touched everybody that came into my hospital room. We had a bit of a rule. You couldn't come in and talk to me from the other side of the room. And registrars used to come and do this. Or one of the many new doctors that would come and see me to give some new test. I would insist that they came to the side of the bed and that they touched my arm or I touched their arm. I had to make this bond, this connection with people. Because, of course, I could get a whole set of new cues from doing that. I'd just get their humanness. Otherwise, they're just a disembodied voice. And that was really disorientating for me. And not being able to see yourself in a mirror, what did that do to your sense of self? I remember they took me down to the gym. All hospitals have a little gym area where they, you know, you, you go exercise and move. And and the the physio took me down and I was I had to go on all fours and, and like raise an arm. And I couldn't do any of it. I mean, I, I was so unwell and she put me against these two bars and they had my arms on both sides and they you know dragged my legs across the bars to the end of the bars and I realized there was a mirror because I knew I kind of just knew there was a mirror there and I said to her is there a mirror and she says yeah and I said you just need to take me right up to the mirror and they were really good they did they took me all the way I could almost have my nose against it and feel the cold glass and I cried because I couldn't see myself. And what, in the end, did you come out with as a diagnosis and as a prognosis? Uh, diagnosis was uh, a condition like, oh, sorry, an autoimmune neurological illness called NMOSD, which is otherwise known as Devic's disease. And this is an autoimmune condition that affects the optic nerves and the transverse nerves. So it basically leaves you blind and paralyzed. Rare. Exceedingly rare. And it mostly only gets people in one eye. It does get two eyes, but it's unusual to have both eyes. And they, the idea, the prognosis with, um, if you get NMO SDs, that it will slowly recover. It's, a ner- it's nerve damage. It's your own body attacking itself. And, and not triggered by anything that had happened well, before? Um, the important word here is like. Mine wasn't NMO, but it was very... It, I think one of the analogies that neurologists use a lot is zebras and horses. <laughs> right. They both clip-clop, but they're not the same. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a little bit like that. And it was a disease, and uh, a condition that attacked my body in a similar way, but it's not triggered by the same things, and it certainly doesn't behave in the same way as NMO. But it was very similar. But what was it triggered by? You still don't know. We don't know. Having a very serious and 
perhaps more serious than we realized virus triggers the immune system so mm. my immune system went into attack mode and the problem was um, it attacked myself so we don't know I mean you say that you were very pragmatic and that you were dealing with things you know from a practical point of view but when you're told that that you know hopefully you're going to get better and your sight will return but we don't know when we don't know how long we don't know exactly what you've got it's just a bit like this for someone who just the week before <laughs> was leading this very busy life doing this very visual job mum of two kids busy 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 it's a complete change of life circumstance isn't it you're dependent on your family to support you you can't do all the things you wanted to do how did that feel I think what it did in me is it it powered up the bloody-minded part of my psyche, which was, right, if you can't sort me, I'll sort me. And and I did go absolutely into this, I'll heal myself. I'll sort, I'm, I am not staying blind. I am not staying paralysed. And so any positive that they gave me, I hung on to that. I didn't hear any of the negatives. I only heard the positives. What did you tell your kids? Oh, that was tough. The children didn't understand what had happened. They didn't see me for two weeks. They came into the hospital once and that was, they were very frightened. They both, oh gosh, it almost makes me cry because I was in a wheelchair. I'd had so much blood taken. I mean, I looked awful. There's one photograph of me and I'm black and blue. And I had a big, massive tube in my neck because they'd given me a very unusual um, treatment called plasma apheresis. And they, it's really horrible. They put a great big tube in your neck. Mm -hmm. And so the kids crawled up me and just touched this tube and were like, mummy, mummy. Because they just wanted to protect me, you know. And when I came home, the kids kind of accepted it. What was your sight like when you came home? So I was still legally blind. What did you have for support? That part wasn't so great. They pretty much send you off home. With a stick? With a stick. Okay. And no training? No. Nope. I had one lady who was lovely who came from a support service to tell me how to cross roads and how to use a stick and some support aids for blind people. All of which I was like not using any of that because I'm not staying blind. But there are some practical things that you just need to do, right? Yeah, there were. And so I just had to do them. Like, what, what was the hardest thing? Uh, putting the washing machine on. <laughs> I, I remember when we fir I first came back home and, you know, they cleared the house and it was all tidy. Not that I could particularly see that. But there was this order, no toys to be left on the floor because mummy will trip on them. Mm. And, of course, that lasted a day. And so the floor was like this, you know, obstacle course. So that's great if you're having to learn to see again and navigate the world, because you've got to not tread on Barbie, you know, mm. or a really sharp piece of Lego. Mm. But how did that feel for you, knowing that it would be potentially become normal for them, that you, that you had a, a disability, having not had one before, and that you potentially wouldn't see their faces again, their two and four? Yeah, the, not, it was actually not seeing their eyes. That's what did me in, because I didn't... So when I came home, um, the world was just ghost-like. It was like looking through an x-ray. And so I'd had some contrast come back. And contrast is literally the dark and light in the world. So if you go and look at a window frame right now, you will notice that there is a dark edge to the window frame, inevitably. And so that's what I could see. I could see all these lines in the house. But I couldn't see faces. And it was really frustrating, because I wanted to see people. People were just like moving ghosts. 
and everything was black and white. I had no color and I had no three dimensions. So everything was just flat. And then over time, um, more and more detail would start to come through. So I would get a little bit more white. And it was a really, really slow process. So the children um, were helping me with that process. So I could see weird things. Sometimes I could see nothing. But then if someone has a check shirt on, I would see a crisscross of the check. Hmm. And I'd say, I could see check. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're jumping around. And the kids would, the kids were so good at championing any small change. If they knew I was having a bad time, which I had lots and lots of times, they would not say a word, like cats do. Animals do this. They just crawl on you and they just hug you. Those hugs and that contact was just like soul food. Continuing her mission to document her progress, Vanessa starts recording voice notes of what she can see. So everything blends into everything else because I can't separate and differentiate colour in the distance. So it's all one big flat canvas where trees merge into fences, merge into fields, into people because they're all tonally the same. And unless there's a bright blob of orange or red or yellow or blue even, um, I can't pull the other colours out. And so it's all totally one shade and it feels like, especially when the sun's out, that go, the blacks go blacker. But in the flat day, it's all got this greyness where everything merges. I was just interested in what I could do for myself. Mm. And so I did a lot proactively. I set up a whole load of experiments in my home. Like what? So I had a shower gel bottle um, in our shower room, which had been left in the corner. And I would go every single morning and I would look at that shower gel bottle and I would record on a dictaphone what the changes were. And so, for example, when I first looked at it, I could barely see it. It was black and white and I couldn't see any detail or labelling. It was a new shower gel bottle, which was important because I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And everyone was instructed never to touch it and never to use it. So, of course, over time it became covered in lime scale, but it never got moved. And I would record what details I could see on the bottle and around it. Like, you know, one week to the next, I would notice that actually the the bottle itself was kind of white, whitish. So it was, you know, whitish, almost cream. And actually they looked like them. there was a dark smudge, which I figured was a label. And then the week after, I'd realised that the smudge actually had slightly rounded edges to it. And then the week after that, the smudge had actually a white square on the top of it. And then the week after that, on the white square, there was a little black smudge. That's lettering. The week after that, I could make out that there was an N on that lettering. It went like that. And so I would record whether I could see contrast, colour, texture, tone and detail. Always improving like that gradually? very gradually. So my daughter came home from school one day and she had on one of those gingham dresses that kids have Mm. in nursery in um, primary school and I knew hers was red she came and jumped on me and we did the normal thing where she'd go right mummy can you see my eyebrows that was our little thing because she has blonde eyebrows really difficult for me to see so that was a real challenge and I'd be like no I can't and she's that's all right mummy and she gave me a big hug and I said I've got the strangest thing your dress 
is warm. Your dress feels warm. And she sat up and she went, does it? I said, yeah. She goes, it's red. I said, I know it's red, but I can't see red. But your dress feels warm, so I know it's red. And in fact, as colour started to come back, um, red would interchange with green. It would flash between. So grass would sometimes flash up as red, green, red, green, red, green. Blue suddenly started to come back and blue sparkled like it was effervescent, like a lit sparkler. So it would have this incredible luminosity to it and it would actually move and shimmer. And all along then, there was nothing physically wrong with your eyes. That's what all the optical experts were saying, right? So the lens of my eye was fine. So the actual front of my eye was not damaged at all. It was my optic nerves. So where the messages travel through the light, through the little pupil, the light bounces off the optic nerve. And that was inflamed and damaged. And so the messages were coming in, but they weren't going through to my brain. So as we said, this was 10 years ago, what we've Mm. been describing. Mm. What happened since? What's the situation now? So it took a year for my vision to return. And I now have colour, but I have muted colours. The visual disturbance is still there. The very first visual disturbance The static type feeling. So they're kind of staticky. I describe it as looking through a dirty windshield. Or if you've got muslin curtains, if you look through a muslin curtain, it's kind of this sort of disturbance, this kind of um, muted view. Everything's softer. So I, for example, I can't tell if someone's been on holiday and has got a suntan. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle to tell if someone's uh, mixed race. Um, mm-hmm. There are all sorts of uh, subtle cues that I now lose. So it's that, that fog thing you were describing. So it's the fog. The fog is still here. Yeah. And, and that's muted everything in terms of detail and contrast. I have very low contrast, which means a road will look all grey to me. And it'll be difficult, especially in certain sunlight, for me to notice the difference between the curb and the road. Differences are difficult for me to notice. Like trees and foliage is all green. I have to really work hard to separate out greens. Does that feel like hard work or are you just used to it now? It's constantly hard work. It's hard work for my nervous system. My, I, my vision, my visual system works much harder than everyone else to just maintain normal life. So what can you do and what can't you do these days? There isn't anything I can't do because we can adapt. Well, drive, presumably. Yeah, I can drive. Can actually. you? Yes. You've I just can. said you can't see the difference in the road no, and the curve. that's contrast. <laughs> so there's another facet to vision, which is acuity. And we measure acuity to pass driving tests. My acuity... Is probably as good as yours. I have low contrast, which is a different thing. So I have had specialist tests done and I am allowed to drive. I choose not to drive at night Mm. and I choose not to drive anywhere that I'm not familiar with. Um, Do you feel safe when you're doing it? I am safe around here. I wouldn't go on a motorway. Okay. I make that choice myself. And what have you adapted to make life easier for yourself? I mean, do you use high contrast on Google Chrome or whatever? I do. Um, My phone has text on big. Um, I... I'm not very good at reading things like red type on computers. Um, All sorts of subtle things, like I wear hats. People think it's a a style thing. It's not. It's because it gives gives me more contrast outside. And and I have all sorts of ways of getting around. So all my friends know, like, if I was to meet them somewhere, they know to wave like crazy people because I won't notice them in a crowd. Going down dark steps at night, my son will just quietly take my hand. Mm. Or he'll say, mummy, there's a step there. 
So it's amazing. We've all just adapted and we all just get on with it. Is there a chance that your vision could go downhill again? Of course. Uh, we think it was what they call monophasic, which is a one-off. And I'm going with that. Um, it is 10 years and I've not had anything since. So I'm forever hopeful that that will maintain. You know, though, if you have an injury or an illness and you have a weakened part of the body, that is going to be the problem place when mm. you're older. So I know that my vision will cause problems. But the thing is, it's not the worst that happens. But what is the worst for somebody? It's all so individual. But I feel like I've had the worst happen and I got through it. And I just know there's always a way. It's just something that's burning inside of me. There is always a bloody way. Always. There's always a plan B, a plan C. It's still the producer in my head that says, we'll get through this because there is something we can do. So even if it does happen, I will meet it head on and I'll have plan B, C, D and E if necessary. <laughs> and how do you feel when people get in touch with you from around the world, as I'm sure they do, and say, you're such an inspiration. What an inspiration you are. I'm so inspired by your story. Because it strikes me that on the one hand, yes, it is brilliant that you did manage to put your mind to making yourself better. But on the other hand, there are so many people that end up being injured or are disabled and, and they literally physically can't do that. And it changes the narrative around disability to being one of the, somehow the people that are uh, being wheeled around in wheelchairs and can't see anything. It's their own fault. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's really tough. You know, I was so lucky that I got what vision I've got back and that I got my mobility back. And I have never taken that for granted. There's a certain amount that I did to leverage my recovery, sure. for sure, and to facilitate that. But ultimately, that's down to biology. You live in a part of London as well that has very easy access to nature. We're in the suburbs here. You back onto a park where you live. Mm. Did that help being around the natural world? It absolutely was a major part of my recovery, walking out in nature. Um, nature became my testing ground, my, one of my my lab, if you like. I would examine leaves and branches, what I should be seeing, but I wasn't seeing it. So I was telling my visual system what it should be seeing. And so I do that continuously going, you are green, you are green, you are a blue gate, blue, blue, blue. So I could try and trigger these connections with my brain that had got lost to reconnect. And that's something that you've sort of incorporated into your career now. Yeah, so, so having this really extraordinary experience changed my life completely. I became absolutely obsessed with the power of the mind because... There was a moment where I realised during all of this that the relationship I had with my mind was utterly crucial. So park bathing is a green health movement that I have founded with uh, Kirsten McEwen, who's a health researcher at Derby University. So forest bathing, I should explain what that is to explain where the name comes from. Forest bathing is otherwise known as Shinrin-yoku in Japan. This is uh, a prescription, health prescription. So if you're um, suffering from stress or depression or anxiety in Japan, you get sent to a, a forest bathing center mm. and they prescribe three hours walking around in a beautiful ancient woodland. And this has lots and lots of clinically tested benefits. So Kirsten and I wanted to take all those juicy bits of that happen in a three hour 
experience a forest bathe in an ancient woodland and make it accessible because going off to an ancient woodland in this country for three hours is not accessible for most people and that's why it's called park bathe and we set the movement up we got national lottery funding in 2021 and we've now taken over 300 people on park bathe walks and we've done a research study a citizen science study and we've got incredible health benefits from it Things like a 51% reduction in, you know, mind chatter, rumination, overthinking, and a 40% reduction in anxiety. So we know it works. Vanessa Potter. And you can find out all about her park bathing project and her books, and she does a podcast as well, by heading over to our website, modernman2ends.co.uk. I've also put links in the show notes. Still to come, Alex Fox tackles a weighty issue, your sex questions in the foxhole after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time for the foxhole. Your sex questions answered with Alex Fox. How are you, Alex? I have been looking deep into my crystal bollock and predicting that maybe more people's asses are about to be affected by poppers. That's interesting because, uh, I mean, I'll, immediately when you say poppers, I think gay culture. You don't so, think uh, jalapenos and cream cheese, which may also fuck with your ass. <laughs> um, but yeah, these are poppers are drugs of the chemical class officially called alkyl nitrates. Uh, you sniff them and they give you a temporary high, a bit of a rush, and they also have a relaxing effect on... On, the, on your bum hole. Also on your throat and your vagina, but okay. it's the bum hole that they, they tend to be used yeah. to target. They've been available way back um, in the 19th century when they were uh, originally formulated to treat angina or chest pain. So fascinating, uh, they, isn't yeah. it, the history of drugs? And they came in these little glass ampules that were wrapped in cotton or fabric, and then you pop these ampules to sniff them in order to, to treat what was going on in your chest. And then when their bum-based side effects became discovered by the gay community around the 1970s, they were still in these little ampules, so that's where the, the popper's name comes from. The reason why I think more people might be about to experiment with them... Yeah, so, so is this the, the theory is... Basically straight people too, right? Straight people and also people who are perhaps more straight thinking and conservative in their values. Go on. Because of their association with drugs and homosexuality, lots of people think of poppers as quite stigmatised and taboo. But the world's first super premium poppers, called Excalibur XO, have just been launched in a really fancy schmancy pants bottle and a really fancy schmancy location. Uh, it's part of London Cocktail Week and they're being served alongside an alcoholic beverage, a connoisseur cocktail. As an London, aphrodisiac. Partly as an aphrodisiac, partly as an educational exercise. There's money from every sale that's going towards the Tom of Findlay Foundation, which is dedicated to preserving and promoting the 
uh, archive of that artist's homoerotic work. The whole exercise has been curated in collaboration with an author called Adam Smith, uh, who wrote a book called Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Okay, so it's hold a, it's on. About I mean, this sounds like a lovely press release, but I do feel like I'm reading time out now. Are you honestly saying this is going to be mainstream because they're serving it at a bar for London Cocktail Week to raise money for the Tom of Finland Foundation? That doesn't sound like something I'm going to be getting in the Weatherspoons in Wolverhampton. No, but it is the kind of thing that's going to get press outside of gay circles and may cause some people to give something a try that they hadn't done before and maybe think about it in a different way. And this is happening concurrently with developments like there's a company, I believe they're Canadian, called Tush Tush, (laughs) who've developed this inhaler cap that fits on any kind of bottle of poppers and means that you can operate it with one hand, because your other hand may be otherwise engaged, and also stops the liquid spilling or splashing because it is quite corrosive and you can get something called popper's nose where you kind of burn the skin around your nasal passages so taking poppers is being um, made into an easier and uh, potentially less risky thing so do you think it's going to get to a stage where we see it for sale in boots then I don't know whether we'll see it for sale in boots, but we might see it marketed to a more mainstream and less gay-specific audience in sex shops. Let's move on to our sex question of the month. And it's from someone who has chosen to remain anonymous but self-identifies as a foxhole fan, who says, Hi Alex, my partner and I have been together for five years, live together and love each other very much. We don't have sex as frequently as in the beginning of our relationship. (laughs) Join the club there. But in the last year, it's really dropped off a cliff. At the same time, my partner has gained a lot of weight, and I can't help think that the drop in frequency is linked to his weight gain and his worries about body image. He hasn't mentioned this to me, but I know him well enough to tell that it is bothering him. My issue is not having less sex than usual. Frequency is not that important to me, but I have a partner who potentially has issues with body image and is struggling in silence. I've listened to enough iterations of The Foxhole to know that you'll say, sit down and talk about it. (laughs) I feel seen and heard. (laughs) But I worry that in doing so, I might make things worse, especially if I'm wrong. So do you have any ideas on how to tackle this and boost his self-esteem? This question has landed at an opportune time for me personally, because... You're looking great. Thank you, but my weight has changed. Has it? Uh, yeah, yeah, quite significantly. Genuinely. I've gone up about two dress sizes. This is because I already had a bit of a layer of pandemic insulation, but then I became very ill with pneumonia in America and lots of associated complications. I had to take a ton of steroids and different medications that affected my body and made me made me get bigger. I couldn't exercise, and I was also surrounded by glorious foodstuffs in a country where everything is deep fried. And did that affect your self-esteem and in the bedroom too? Well, the thing is, philosophically and aesthetically, I know that bigger bodies and bodies of all shapes and sizes can be absolutely hot. I can look at other women's bigger bodies and think they look smashing and absolutely smashable. Um, And I also am someone with a personal philosophy that I want to feel good whatever skin I'm in. I don't believe in self-punishment, even if I do want to change myself and get fitter. Yeah, but everyone has a size at which they felt more comfortable, if you can remember it and then you're not it. 
you're going to feel uncomfortable. For me, there was this negative association of this extra weight being linked to being unwell and the the sadness, even the grief that was associated with that. Um, I went to America with all these hopes and dreams of what it was going to be like and I spent more than six weeks unable to leave the flat. So having a physical, literally carrying around the weight of that time hasn't made me feel particularly sexy. And trying to, I think there's an extra layer there, trying to reconcile me feeling not great about myself with then feeling angry and like I've let down my own personal beliefs because I don't feel wonderful Mm. has ended up with a real melange of messiness there. And my partner has been absolutely brilliant in trying to manage this complex situation of of how I feel about myself. Okay, so that's good. And we'll talk about how he did that. And there might be some lessons there. But you're a very communicative person. Look at your job. Look at what you're doing now. What our correspondent here is saying is their partner doesn't talk about it. How would you want to be approached feeling like that if you hadn't said anything? Well, even I felt much more sensitive chatting about this than I might do other topics. My partner and I actually sat down and had a chat inspired by this question and came up with a script that we thought would work for both of us if we ever had to talk about body image again. Mm -hmm. First of all, trying to preface things with love, saying, I adore you, I always want the best for you. So that, you you know, you're, you're starting a conversation not wanting to gripe at somebody, but with their best interests at heart. And then progressing to talking about the changes you've noticed in mood and behavior, rather than the changes you've noticed in someone's body or their shape or their size. So saying something like, I can't help but notice you seem a little more shy around me, or I get Mm. the sense that you don't feel as comfortable in your body right now. Do you want to share with me a little bit more about what's going on? Or could you tell me a bit of what's on your mind? So you're not, it's not about I've seen that you look different. It's I sense that you feel different. And also crucially, it's not, we're not having as much sex as we used to. No, really, your main concern here is what's causing this bodily change and what's causing this potential change in in mental state. Um, There's a therapist called Marissa Peer who has this program called Live a Dietless Life. She's quite focused on weight loss, and I would say that she and I aren't aligned in, in everything that we believe. But I do agree with her that it's often not what you're eating, but what's eating you that's the real root of a problem. Could it also be the case that as you put weight on, And that affects the frequency with which you're then having sex, if those two things do correlate. That that's not just about some level of shame or worry about how you're perceived, but actually genuinely, physically, it might affect your libido. Like being heavier, maybe you just aren't feeling as physically active as you did. Yeah, that can absolutely be the case for some people. When they're rumping and pumping in bed, uh, they might not have as much energy. For some people, greater weight is correlated with pre-diabetes or other health issues that can affect your libido, your general energy levels. For some men, there's a link with erectile issues. Mm. This isn't the case for 
everybody, by the way. There are also studies that show that some larger people are actually having more sex than some smaller people. It's so interesting, isn't it, how that would change? Depending uh, from a man's point of view, and depending, I think, on what sort of what sort of man you perceive yourself to be, I could imagine there's a, in a bedroom there's a sense of being physically bigger, therefore potentially more dominant, might be sexually exciting for some men. Other men would think, I am not looking my best. I'm not a turn on for the person I'm with. Bits of me look smaller. Bits of me look bigger. And it's the same physical specimen we're talking about, but with a different brain potentially interpreting what's going on in two different ways. Yeah, absolutely. For some people, feeling bigger will just be more of them to love and they may still feel very sexy and confident. And talking directly about their body might feel like a a, a difficult or particularly sensitive area in which to give them praise. Um, But for some people, saying, oh, I love how big and manly and sexy you are. I love the way your body feels against me. Oh, I love, I love you um, smushing me. <laughs> yeah, you've got we to mean it. You can't work. fake it. That's the problem, isn't it? So, I mean, I suppose it's all about what our correspondent really does think. It's also about what our correspondent really does know. I chatted to Andy Coley, who is an NLP practitioner. He specialises in neuro-linguistic programming, which is all about the the way you speak to yourself and, and the messages you give to yourself to try and change your habits and your outlook. But he also used to be 23 stone himself. So he has a little bit of specialist insight when it comes to talking about body image that may be connected to weight. He said that our listener really should be careful in assuming that she knows her partner well enough to preempt that she is absolutely certain about what's causing issues for him. Um, Andy pointed out that even if she knows 90% of what's going on in his mind and that she, she, you know, she's read him right, there might still be 10% of stuff he's worried about that she never could have guessed mm. that she will only find out by asking these compassionately curious, open-minded questions. Yeah, and actually listening to the yeah. answer. Yeah. Another tip that Andy gave, which is similar to things I've said in the past about not talking about sex in the bedroom. In this case, it's probably best not to talk about it in the kitchen as well. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> away from snacks. Well, Andy <laughs> (laughs) said why don't you go for a walk somewhere because not only does that mean that the next time you sit down at the dinner table if that's the if that's the place that you had this awkward chit chat your partner isn't thinking oh god here we go again Mm. is this going to be the way it is every time that we sit down to have a meal now there's going to be this loaded laden difficult talk just the process of walking as well can help your parasympathetic nervous system to feel calmer and you're getting some exercise which might be good if you well, put on a few pounds. Well, actually, joyful movement that's non-sexual is something that can be helpful. Another person I spoke to is a woman called Anupa Roper. She is a former primary school teacher, taught kids for about 17 years, and has now started a fledgling business called Sparrow Legs, helping children to develop positive body image. And she says if we can change that at source, then we're more likely to raise a generation where issues like the one our listener is potentially facing with her partner are less likely to crop up. One thing that she said is, if you're worried that your partner has concerns about their body image, but you don't, it can automatically feel like you're not on a level playing field. So talking about 
how both your families discussed bodies when you were growing up, times in the past when maybe during your adolescence you felt, felt a bit odd in your own body and a little bit unsure. That can help for the two of you to relate a little bit more. And also talking about um, body as a changing thing over time can help reiterate the idea that all of us are on journeys with our bodies. Change is normal, flux is standard. She also suggested maybe even before you have this big sit down talk, there are small things that you can do um, encouraging movement together in fun ways that are non-sexual. Things like having a dance around the kitchen or maybe a slow dance in your living room going on a treasure hunt walk. I, I found that um, playing virtual reality games uh, where you have to chop fruits in half and stuff really helped me because it was feeling good in my body with my partner mm. um, in a way that wasn't oriented towards a goal of weight loss mm. or changing it's my different body. different to being in a gym or in a Yeah, class, exactly. It, it yeah. wasn't about punishment. It wasn't about achieving anything other yeah. than moving together in a way that felt great. Mm. I'm aware that a lot of this talk is philosophical and a bit of amorphous, so I want to give a few more practical, solid, actionable things. Mm -hmm. Careful compliments. Talking about bodies can be difficult, but saying things like, I am so proud to be out with you, or waking up with you makes me feel so happy. Oh my God, you make me laugh so much, it's so hot. Oh, I, I fancy you so much. Or your voice is so sexy. My partner, says to me a lot, I love your curves. Mm. And I find this a tricky one mm. because- But that's to do with how you're brought up, isn't it? And yes. what you think of as a perception of beauty. There's a really quite a, a, a broad range of curvaceousness that he, he is into. He loved my curves when I was smaller. He loves my curves when I'm larger. But because I, in my mind, that sounded like somebody specifically trying to identify something that changed about me and mm. say that they liked it. Mm. It was problematic in my head. Ditto him, dear, hearted lovely man that he is he sometimes says things oh you, like you're the most beautiful girl in the world oh you're the most stunning lady on the planet if I am covered in steroid induced adult acne and looking like something out of fraggle rock and feeling like roadkill it's quite difficult for me to believe such an extreme statement and on my worst most mad ass days I get cynical about whether he's telling the truth so I've actually asked him if he can chill out on those OTT compliments when he senses that I might be feeling a bit down and saying something like, you're my favorite person to be around is mm. something that I'm much more likely to believe and thus is li mm -hmm. more likely to, to lift my mood. Let's also talk about sex life because I know our listener says frequency doesn't matter to them, etc., etc. If you're not feeling sexy, having sexy times can help you f get on the road to feeling sexier, right? And I don't want this listener and her partner to feel like sexual pleasure should only be something that they can share when he's feeling better about his body. They could be pressing pause on their sex life for a very long time. Life is a waste if you don't infuse it with as much pleasure as you can, even though that is sometimes hard. So here are some workarounds that mean that they can enjoy sex now one thing that my partner said, I've just got it underlined multiple times, is blowjobs. <laughs> if you're happy to give them, give your man a blowjob right now. 
It involves... Zero physical exertion for him. Exactly. Hard to imagine he won't be grateful. Yeah, it it is very likely to make him feel desired. Mm. You can't keep your hands and your mouth off him. You do not have to strip him naked for that. You can just unzip his flies and go down on him, and that going down is likely to bring his mood and his self-esteem up, if that's something, of course, that both parties feel comfortable and consenting to. Um, Other sex where he gets to keep his clothes on... It can be actively hot to make your partner feel like you are so driven and desperate to go at it with them that you can't even wait for them to get their pants off. And it means that he doesn't have to worry if he is feeling a bit nervous about nakedness. Um, Blindfolds, not so much on him, but on yourself. Um, Frame it as a fun, kinky experiment if you want, but if he feels less observed in a sexual context, he might find it easier to uh, to relax and enjoy the moment. Alex, I'm going to say open-mindedly and compassionately that you are my favourite person to do sex Q&A with. <laughs> Thank you. And I you. mean that. That does actually make me feel wonderful. Makes me feel good about my curves. Um, If you have a question of sex that you would like to put to Alex, what do you have to do with it? Head on over to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and uh, hit feedback. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new manbassador. It is Chris in Macclesfield, who says, Ollie, keep up the good work. I would be flattered if you'd contemplate making me manbassador for pubs and inns, having been a publican in Macclesfield for 12 years. I would indeed contemplate it, Chris. Uh, Although I was actually contemplating it when you emailed me to say, could you pause your beer money subscription? And then I thought, oh, I don't want people to feel they need to buy their way in. I'll try and keep these events separate. Then I forgot about it for a year. Then we had a bit of a backlog. So now I finally got round to this shout out. It could well be that you are no longer a publican nor indeed listening. (laughs) Do let me know if you heard it. I hope you did. If you'd like to be an ambassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line. Links on the website. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on November the 10th. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.